a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Good morning. Good morning. It's Saturday. So we've got, honestly, kind of a large one going on today. Quite a bit happening. We're we're looking at the 12th lesson here in Genesis. Chapter 10. We're going to go through the entire chapter. You know, sometimes we do fuller sections. Sometimes we do smaller sections because there's a lot of stuff going in. I, I think we've done, what, seven, eight verses at a time, all the way up to 30, almost 40 verses at a time. Just depends on what's going on. This section, I'm not going to lie. This was one of those times where I really, I really debated because there's a ton going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of things that we can tie into this. This is, this section is known as the table of nations and we could we could go super super deep in this and, and take it all through the scriptures and point out multiple different directions and sections, or we could do that when we get there, or we can gloss over it and just kind of read it and make a small little point to it, or make some extra points along the way. So this is this is not the easiest section to go through, kind of the way we're doing it, where we do kind of a hybrid to where it's more in depth than most people will normally get and that you're going to get at a lot of just straight churches, just regular evangelical churches that you would show up to. But at the same time, it's not seminary level. We're, we're not here to, to scare people away. You're not going to come here and, and get a seminary degree out of this, but you're, you're going to come away with a lot more than you're going to get at most places. Not to say that there aren't places you're going to go and get even deeper. That They're, they're, they're out there. Let's, let's just dig into this just realize today, if nothing else, because this is a section that normally, at least when I read the scripture, I'm getting better about it. When I just simply read through the scripture, I'm getting better about making sure that I'm not skimming through when it's lists of names. But definitely when we study it, we want to make sure that we we take time and, and see what's being represented there. But I know for a lot of people, when we read through sections like this, where it's just names, son of, son of, son of, it gets really, really easy to just skim it and miss anything that's important in there. This is one of those sections where it's Moses, the the narrator at this point, is setting the stage for what is about to happen. And so it's actually pretty important that we pay attention to what's happening and realize the context here. The flood finished, wiped everybody in the narrative at least, right? Whether it's full-gone global or at least, you know, scientifically and through DNA, they've discovered there is a, a an actual biological Eve. Everything boils down to a single female. They've been able to show that through genetics. Awesome. That's great. Now, this is everything then getting shifted down into, now it goes back to one family. And that family then disperses out and creates all of the nations and all the clans that go out from there then forward. Okay. so. This is Moses setting the stage for what is about to happen 
It's again, a smaller section inside of Genesis, but it is an absolutely massive theological event. And this is him setting the stage for what is about to happen there. And then what happens and who the people are afterward. So let's dig into it. If nothing else today, you're, you're going to get a wonderful show of me struggling to say ancient Hebrew names. We'll, we'll have a good time together. Let's do this. Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 32 in the ESV. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Jevan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elijah, Tarshish, Kittim, and Domnim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Hivala, Sabta, Rehama, Sabteca, the sons of Rehama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehebim, Nephtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, and the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. Children were born, the sons of Shem, Alam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarameth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzul, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. 
All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sifar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you got some coffee and are ready for a comedy show. Woo. People who know me, it's I have no problem laughing at myself, especially when I can't pronounce words. This is why it's hilarious when a dyslexic person decides to teach and do this stuff. It's it's just it's all fun. It's all fun and games. So it's all right if you're laughing and chuckling at my horrible pronunciations. It's okay. We got it. All right, so this breaks down into, really, it's it's three different genealogy lines. We're breaking this down into four just to make things kind of simple. First of all, verses one to five, we see the sons of Japheth, six to 14, the sons of Ham, 15 to 20, we're going to look at the sons of Canaan, which Canaan, again, is part of the sons of Ham, and then 21 to 32, sons of Shem. Before we really get into it, what what is the table of nations? Why is this something we even talk about? What's going on here? So traditionally, within church history, it is traditionally accepted that there are 70 nations that come about after the Tower of Babel. We have a, a, line, a lineage here of 70 nations. Now, if you count it up and you go directly, there's 73, but there's a couple that are repeated lines in there, and there's a few other things. The traditional accepted answer is 70. Now, you might hear some people talk about 72 nations. And again, the, the general consensus there is when when you get to the 72, it's because we're adding Israel and Edom. So you would get 72 from this list of 70, okay? And this all stems from the genealogy after Noah and his sons, his son's lines going down after that. It's clearly not exhaustive. Okay. There, there were more, more lines of people and more groups of people because these guys didn't only have sons. If they only had sons, there wouldn't be any other people. So they had daughters as well. And then it goes out from there. So there were clearly other people groups and other tribes that were started during this time. But this is just the, the general form of the lands and the people groups that were started after the Tower of Babel. This just sets up and sets up the stage. We get 14 from Japheth heading into now what is known as Europe primarily. Okay, there's still not all of them get there, but primarily they go up and head towards Europe. 30 from Ham heading down into what's now Africa. And then 26 from Shem into the Asian region. All right. Notice that some of these are names, like actual names of people, whereas others of them are names of people groups the tribe names, and others are names of locations. Not everything is based off of the actual name of the individual, but some of them are the names of the country or the actual full-on people groups. But the concept that's being shared here is how diverse the spreading of mankind after the flood and how quickly it happened. Okay, that is the entire point of this, is mankind started to rebuild and start redoing all of this stuff. And as we see when we get into chapter 11, the first part of chapter 11, things were going right back down the same rabbit trail, right? Things were going the exact same direction and it wasn't good. Now, I, one of my favorite modern theologians, unfortunately he passed earlier this year, heaven is celebrating that that Dr. Heiser is is there with him. 
I, I wish we could have gotten a little bit more material from him, but he's got some amazing books if you're interested in, in some of these things. He's kind of like me. He's a little bit of an oddball or was a little bit of an oddball and like to look into certain parts of the scripture and line things up. But he, he was a master of the ancient languages and a master of the text and digging through things and making sure that we understand things inside of the actual context of the day. It's one of the things I love about him is he had this really great ability to take himself out of today's mindset and place himself into the mindset of the days of past. And we're in a wonderful situation now to where we've archaeologically been able to discover a lot more. So we have a lot more resources than they had 100 years ago. And so if you're digging through uh, commentaries and whatnot that are 50 years old, it's it's almost completely obsolete and it's almost worthless because of the, the material that we've been able to find predates all of the material that we had then. And with computer technology, we've been able to do the translation work and link languages together. Seriously, over the last 25, 30 years, the, the world of biblical studies and getting into ancient texts and getting the information out of them has just absolutely exploded, which is so weird. The internet has pulled people away from God and yet, because of some of that technology, we've been able to learn more and more and more and prove so much more of what's going on in the scriptures. It's, it's such an oddity, but we've learned so, so much. But Dr. Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser has, in a couple of his books, a couple of really good ones. One's a little bit more textbooky, maybe a little bit much for, for most people. The Unseen Realm, it's a great book. It's just really, really deep. He's also got another book that is kind of a quicker, easier read version of the Unseen Realm. It's called Reversing Herman. It's a great, great book. But he's pointed out multiple different places and other theologians have done the same thing. He's not the first one to come up with this groundbreaking idea because usually when that happens, you know, run for the hills. But this is, he's been able to bring back this concept and show it by linkings with things that we found through the Qumran texts, meaning the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of these other things, right? There's, there's a considerable theological linking with the 70 and the 70s nations here. We, we see the, the, the nations here of 70. We get up into the split with the Tower of Babel and being diversed and spread out, confused and laid over with the to the number of the sons of God. And then even when Jesus sends out his original disciple set, the massive disciple set, he sends out 70 or 72. And usually, depending on where you're going from, you either get a, a listing of 72 nations and then 72 disciples being sent out, or you get a listing of 70 nations and you get 70 disciples being sent out. So there is a lot of theological linking about God wanting to get people back. He wants to rebuild and get things back to what they were initially intended to be, into that Edenistic state. And I think we also have a little bit of a confusion of what, what was that Edenistic state? You know, wasn't it just paradise on earth and we could just go and, and live there? Well, yeah, but why was it paradise? I think one of the concepts that we have is we, we want to sit there and say Eden was paradise because it was beautiful and it was lush and everything was there and it was easy and we didn't have to worry about. That's great. And that's all well and good and it's all true. But I think one of the things that we truly miss is it was the place to where the conditions were ripe. The conditions were perfect. And we actually had an opportunity to commune and live with God. God could be there in his regular form. 
the other Elohim, the other spirits, the other, the other entities on that plane could interact with the tangible on a regular basis. We had this spot to where corporeal and non-corporeal could co-mix naturally. And then that was broken. And God wants to rebuild and re-put things back to the way they're going to be. That's why when, when Jesus resurrects and he has his new resurrected body, and we talked about the resurrected body, Jesus was able to do things that normal bodies can't do. He, he could be in a room that the doors were locked and then just not be there. Because he was now perfect in the way that his body was then perfect in the way that he could coexist in both places. It's just, I think, I think we've missed so much of the point of what the Eden was and what it was intended to be. And God's working his way back. And this right here, the table of nations, is actually a pretty deep theological spot and part of how God reworks and reshapes things. Because we, we got to look back at the narrative. God creates and creates everything. And that's, a, again, the, the whole point of Genesis. You go through the entire point of Genesis. If you get nothing out of the entire study here in Genesis, get this. God created. It's all God. The God. The God of the Bible. The God of Jesus. The God of Abraham and Jacob. God. I am. Created. And created everything. Everything that's here is because God allowed it and God made it. That is the point of the narrative of Genesis. So you start with God creating from, and then there's the chaos from the initial portion of creation. And then he makes it to where it's beauty and structure and things work. And then he creates life. And then we get flesh and we get people and they name everything. Everything's good. And then they fall into temptation and it's broken and there's sin and then there's death and then it goes out and then the world falls apart and God starts all over again and does a great reset. Okay. Wipes the earth clean, literally with a flood, whether it's that just the region where everything was or the whole thing doesn't matter. Wipes the, wipes the slate clean, starts over again with one family, Noah and his sons and his Noah's wife, their sons and their wives. And they start all over again. And now we're here and we're about to look at the genealogy that sets the stage for life as it starts back over again afterwards. And not too far into this, devastation happens. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. All right, let's, let's dig into the language here. Let's, we're going to have that fun. All right, verse one. These are the generations of the son of Noah. So every time we see in Genesis, these are the generations. These are the sons of, right? We get that breaking point. We're looking at a new book. 
right? It's a signifying another book or another portion of the narrative inside of Genesis. Still one collection of narratives, right? It builds on itself. It's the same piece. It's the same thing, but we're looking at a totally different line now. So this is starting the discussion of what happens after the flood. So we're starting with the generations because our lineage matters. Our lineage matters. So these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So the narrative of the flood is now over. We're shifting on to humanity and human civilization as it goes afterwards, after the flood, heading towards how the Israelites would have known and recognized the people groups in the land around them. Remember, this, is, this happens with Moses. Moses never makes it to the promised land. And so they're traveling around the desert, going around. They actually kind of go up and around Israel and do all sorts of stuff. They're wandering the wilderness. They're meeting different people groups and seeing different stuff. They are discussing how they would understand the people around them and setting the stage for why these people are, where they're at, and then linking it all back together with, well, it all comes back to one family. Okay, people weren't dumb. <laughs> you didn't have to have a doctorate degree to realize, wait a minute. God started everything with two people and then wiped everything out. And it starts with, again, with one family. How do we have so many different peoples? Sets the stage. How do we get there? So he discusses, how do we get there? Two to three, the sons of Japheth, Japheth, Gomer, Magog. I mean, you might remember the stories of Gog and Magog, right? Which by the way, they didn't live. They're not like brothers. Gog came from the land of Magog. Get there another day. So the sons of Japheth were essentially throughout Anatolia, okay, which is Asia Minor. Okay, it's through Asia Minor, and mainly modern-day Turkey. When we talk Asia Minor, it's mainly modern-day Turkey. If you look on the map, that's going to get you in the in the good general direction of where you're going. Modern-day Turkey, and out towards Egypt, or excuse me, Egypt, out towards Europe, wrong direction, out towards Europe, with many lighting the Mediterranean Sea. Now Gomer here is in reference, because this is this is what we're going to do. This entire study today is all going to be referencing what people groups, what locations are these names going off of, because he's setting the stage of the spread here, right? Spreading out from the Tower of Babel sets the stage of who came from where. Gomer is in reference to the Sumerians, which were a nomadic group north of the Black Sea who ran much of the Anatolia region. And really that happened. They got into a major major perspective there in the 7th century BC. So they, they kind of grew and became a really big group. Magog is mentioned in Ezekiel 38, 1 to 2, as is Tubal, okay? Because they kind of went side by side. Ezekiel 38, 1 to 2 says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog. So set your face towards Gog, the person in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal and prophesy against him, okay? So Ezekiel talks about some of this with Magog and with Tubal. Madai becomes the Medes who made up what is now northwest, northwestern Iran. Javan became the Ionian Greeks. Meshech became Phigia. I'm, again, we're, I'm going to butcher tons of stuff because you have ancient names mixed with ancient names. So we're going to have a fun time. Tyrus, there's different theories with this one. Could be Tertia or possibly Thrace. Others link this to the Etruscans who settle in Italy. Gomer, this, these, his sons, Ashkenaz, these were the Scythians, 
which is modern-day Russia and Ukraine, so spreading up into that region. Rifath, the location's not necessarily certain. However, we, we see this in the Masoretic texts in First Chronicles 1-6 and in a lot of different manuscripts. It's actually written different in certain manuscripts. It's Diphath, but most of the manuscripts here agree with the Rifath. So this one, and bringing this up because there's a couple things like that. Now, one thing to point out, when Hebrew scribes went, the Hebrew R and the Hebrew D look a lot alike. And so it was really common for them to, the scribes over time, to mix them up sometimes. And so most of the manuscripts agree that this is Rifath, not Diaphath. We'll just, we'll just go for that. And again, mo most of the time they also didn't use vowels. So, uh, but anyway, they, they kind of, yeah, we're not exactly certain where this, this group was. It was an ancient group that we're just not sure of yet. Tagarma, this is the region of Armenia. Okay. Four to five, the sons of Javan, Javan and Elisha, likely Cyprus, Tarshish, also likely somewhere between Carthage and Tarsus in southwestern Spain. Kittim is also Cyprus, the Cyprus region. And Dodenum, again, this is potentially Rodenum. The R and the D's kind of gets whipped around sometimes during to scribal issues. Now, the R here, Rodenum, is reported in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this. It's also in the Samaritan Pentateuch. And it's also with the R in First Chronicles 1-7. So most likely this is Rhodonym and comes from the island of Rhodes, the people of the islands of Rhodes in Greece. From these, the coastal coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and in their nations. Now, again, this is prior to the Tower of Babel incident. They didn't have their own languages yet. They didn't spread out and do this yet. They were all kind of growing and becoming one people. That, that whole dispersal, according to this, happens after the Tower of Babel. So that is a notion and a point of the people that we know of in this, in these areas, with the, their own languages and all of this, that's where these come from. It's talking about and saying, after the Tower of Babel, this happens. Okay. Now, the language here also suggests that it's not an exhaustive list. Which I, I think we can kind of assume that that should be known. It's not an exhaustive list, but just went with being suggested and said. The Hebrew also for coastland could could suggest island people as well, which we already know some of this was most likely island people, so that makes sense. Now, the sons of Ham, first of all, we're going to start here with, it's just verse six. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. These are Israel's most bitter mm, enemies, rivals, whatever terms terminology you really want to use for this, okay? Cush, throughout the Old Testament, Cush refers to Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia was a little different than what we what we talk about with Ethiopia today, but it was discussed as ancient Ethiopia. Now, depending on your translation, if you're looking at a King James or a new King James, Egypt here, you might be scratching your head saying it doesn't say Egypt. It says Mizraim. Mizraim is Egypt. So that's just all it is. Just depends on which which manuscripts it, your translation was pulled from, but it literally is just Egypt. And so most modern translations just insert Egypt right on in there because we know for sure that's what that is. The nation of Put, Libya, it's modern day Som Somaliland, which is in the Horn of Africa. It's part of, it's an unrecognized 
land inside of Somalia, up in the Horn section of Eastern Africa. Canaan, obviously the Canaanites, and the region of Canaan, which was throughout Palestine, Lebanon, and the Syrian coast. Okay, it's a large people group. Verse 7, the sons of Cush. Uh, this is South Arabia. The sons of Cush were basically throughout South Arabia. Sheba, Northern Africa. Ivla, Southwest Arabia. Sabta, possibly Shabwa. Okay. Rama, Nijran. This is in Saudi Arabia. Sabteka, South Arabia. Then we get the sons of Rama. This is Sheba and Dedan. Both likely were commercial colonies or so in, in collectivist cultures, it was really normal um, if a family member did a trade, meaning they were in not necessarily a trade as in like they were craftsmen, but they were trading goods. Okay, if they did that and they were successful, one of the sons or two of the sons or whatever of their children would actually move to a different region to keep the family business going, but from that other side, to run the business from that side. So they would take the goods from here, ship it up there, and those son or sons would handle it in different regions and in different parts so that the, the business could expand, right? The Silk Road kind of thing, but they would have it to where it would ship from different places. So people in that region would come over because it was a lot easier to get to say, hey, we want this. Great. We'll get it for you where it gets back to dad or whoever else at the family. They get it, they ship it up and away things go. It's just a merchant system. And so most likely the sons of Rayama, Sheba and Dedan were commercial colonies that were up in northern Arabia. All sorts of fun within the history there. 8 to 12 focuses on Cush fathered Nimrod. We have this entire section where he pulls out and talks about Nimrod. Why? Because Nimrod was a historic person and a very famous person throughout the land. People knew Nimrod. And so they discussed this is where Nimrod came from and goes into a little bit more detail. So let's read this real fast. 8 to 12. Cush fathered Nimrod, Nim, wow, Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. That sounds familiar. We'll get there. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From, the land, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir. Kalna and Risen between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Okay. Nim Nimrod literally translates and means we shall rebel. We shall rebel. Okay. Talking about setting the stage, right? We shall rebel. He was a mighty man and a mighty hunter, and he was a mighty leader known to be a king throughout the region and did all of these different things. Okay. Now, mighty man of old, where have we heard that before? Because we've already heard that in Genesis. We heard that in Genesis 6, 4, which was from the Watchers episode or the Watchers lesson. Go back and see that. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We're getting a direct indication here that, that Nimrod was one of these. Mind you, this is after the flood. We know that these continued on after the flood. If you go back into that in the Nephilim episode, Nephilim lesson, we start talking about how 
they became the Giants. Now, when we talk about Giants, there's there is a possibility that the Giants were literally what they were discussed as that that Giants were huge, maybe nine to fifteen feet tall. Who knows? There's a possibility for that. Is it likely? I I, I don't necessarily necessarily think that it's completely likely that they were gigantically huge like that, it's possible. And so I always like to leave the possibility open for that. However, there is another likelihood that the Hebrews were writing in hyperbole, right? They're just kind of exaggerating things and pushing things out. Keep in mind, the average height for a person of this day was about five feet tall, maybe five feet and two or three inches, like just barely over five feet. And some of the reports of people groups in some of these areas were were actually six and six and a half, even pushing seven feet tall. So if someone is literally, if, you, if you're going to go in and, and as a mighty group of people go and fight off an entire group and an entire race of people, and they are literally a foot to two feet taller than you, that's huge. That's huge. Right there's we still have people today that grow usually because of some medical condition or whatnot. They'll grow up to seven, eight, even nine feet tall. Okay, this happens. But when we see somebody that's seven, I'm I'm six feet tall. When I see somebody who's seven feet tall, I'm that person's big. That's a tall person. Okay, it, if you're getting into a place where the average person is a foot and a half, two feet taller than you, yeah, it's gonna feel like they are towering over you. Now. I'm not trying to downplay this and say the possibility of giants as in actual giants from the measurements we have weren't a possibility. It's in the scriptures. Is it possible? Absolutely. Is it possible it's also hyperbole? Absolutely. You know, that was a, people have always, I caught a fish. It was this big, right? It's always a possibility. Let's take a look here really, really fast at Goliath, just to give you an example of what I'm discussing here. Because just some people depending on who you're talking talking to, some people really, oh, it's in the Bible, therefore it has to be exactly how it's written in the Bible. Straight literalism can cause problems, but also not taking the Bible literally enough can cause problems. So we, we want to balance this out, right? We want to we be in a good, healthy position with this. Let, let's take a look really fast at Goliath and, and consider Goliath just for a second, because this is an even more well-known biblically giant. Now, Goliath, we, we take a look at 1 Samuel 17, 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit was roughly 18 inches. Okay, it was the elbow to fingers. So 18 inches and a span was about eight, eight and a half inches. If you do the math, that is pretty tall. <laughs> that is nine and a half feet tall. Not the 15 feet tall, but he's nine and a half feet tall. Now imagine being five feet tall and there's a guy who's almost double your size that you're supposed to fight. That is absolutely huge. Well, here's where things come into, into play with this. And this is why we, we talk about, I think this some of this might be straight up hyperbole. Figure of speech is exaggeration that is then taken out of context for us because when we're reading this as a, a different culture, it's easy to take things that literally that are meant to be poetic. And hyperbole is a form of poetry. It's poetic speaking. Okay. The Septuagint has this exact same account, but has him as four cubits in the span. That puts him at six and a half feet. It's still a foot and a half taller than the average Hebrew. Okay. Now, the, the DSS has him at four cubits, which is roughly six feet. That's still a foot over. 
the average Israelite. That's still, that guy's huge. This guy is absolutely huge compared to everybody else. Again, that would be like me fighting somebody who's seven feet tall, but genetically built and big, right? You're able to do that. So likely giant talk is hyperbole, but there is always that possibility that there were actually people who were 10, 15 feet tall. Because if we have genetic things that push people beyond to that degree, there's a possibility that there were some of them that were that tall. So anyway, I just want to want to talk because I know you get a lot of pushback when you talk to people about giants. Oh, they're talking about giants. See, this is why we know that the Bible is just make-believe and fairy tales. Why? Why Why would that be like, it's poetic. It, why, why can't we get there? So most likely it is a little bit of an exaggeration, but that's okay. But Nimrod is a mighty man. He's the first of the mighty men. In fact, he was such a good hunter because he was large. In fact, historical accounts have Nimrod being considered a giant and large. Even when we go in through biblical accounts, it has him this way, but the historical accounts throughout the narrative throughout Mesopotamia also have him being listed as a giant and being big and very grand like this as well. Again, going to been six, seven feet tall rather than nine or 15 feet tall, but whatever. He was a great hunter because that is how they showed their skill in the day. It was on in hunting and on the battlefield. Now, before the Lord just means on the earth. And he ruled over this vast, vast region throughout Mesopotamia. All right, let's keep going. 13 to 14, the sons of Egypt, okay? Egypt or Mizraim fathered, and it goes through this. Now, this, there's a little bit of extra time put here on Egypt, not a ton, but a little bit. And it makes sense just because they came out of Egypt and they were told, do not go back towards Egypt, okay? Don't go back into the direction of Egypt. So it's fresh in the minds of the people and it's a prime directive for them. Do not go this direction. Egypt, you know, enslaved our people for a long time, had to be let out and they didn't want to come out, yada, yada, yada. So it makes sense that there's a little bit extra time here. Now, Lunum, most likely the Lydians in North Africa, not the ones in Asia Minor. There were two people groups that were listed in the same basic way. This is most likely the group that came out of North Africa. Animum, not certain. This one is probably a subgroup inside of the Egypt and the Egyptians. Normal, have areas that have multiple different people groups inside of them. Naphtum, Lower Egypt, which, by the way, when we talk Lower Egypt, that actually means Northern Egypt because the Nile runs backwards. And so when you talk Upper and Lower, it's not Northern and South. It's based off of the flow of the Nile. So Lower Egypt, Northern Egypt. Pathrusim, this is the people of Upper Egypt in the South. Kalsuhim, these are the Philistines. The, although we, we want to take a moment and pause there. Early Philistines, a drastically and vastly different group than the later, more aggressive Philistines. This could be in reference to the sea peoples and intermittent settlements that were the Philistines. They were kind of like a nomadic group and they didn't do a lot. They were just kind of there. They weren't aggressive. They didn't weren't the mean Philistines that we think of until later on. And then they, they really developed and became that. So at that point, they would have been kind of a, a more docile group. After him, this is the Cretans. 15 to 19, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. So Sidon is a coastal city of Lebanon. Heth is likely the Hittites. 
then we actually get names of actual people groups that we know, the Jebusites. Now, the pre-Israelite inhabitants of Jerusalem, we see that in 2 Samuel 5, 6-9. And the king and his men went into Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. That's that's quite the insult. You're not going to be able to come here. Even our blind and lame are going to hold you off. Oh, man, just the poetic. Love it. All right. The Amorites, another pre-Israel inhabitor of Jerusalem and the surrounding region. It's kind of a widespread rent land. Let's see this in Ezekiel 16.3. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Excuse me, the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. All right. Girgashites is a little bit of a lesser known Canaanite tribe that was in the region. Lesson, lesser known does not mean that it's not in the Bible. It just means there's not a whole lot else known about them. The Hivites, again, also another lesser known Canaanite tribe that was in the region. The Archites, uh, this is the this is Tel Arca, which is in northwest Tripoli in Lebanon. The Sinites, a small city-state in the Ugarit, which is in Phoenicia. Arvidites, Ruid, North Phoenician island town. Zemurites, it's 12 miles south of Arwad. It's an island off the coast of Tartus, Syria. And so if you kind of look at a map of Syria, if you go to Tartus and just go west a bit and south just a hair, there is the island of Arawad. 12 miles south of that, there is an even smaller island that is right around there and believe that that is that island. Hamathites, most northern Canaanite tribe on the Ornitz River, modern-day Hama in Syria. And this group then covered essentially the area from the Gaza Strip. So if you're familiar with the region over there, Gaza Strip to the Dead Sea, even around a little bit south of the Dead Sea and a little bit to the east of the Dead Sea and all the way up, but not quite to Beirut, Lebanon. So it's quite the region. A lot of that would be the, the Fertile Crescent mainly a lot of the Fertile Crescent area. I'll give you a better idea. Easy, easy referencing. And then 20, this is the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands. Again, the split happens after the Tower of Babel incident. All right, 21 to 24, to Shem. Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. Now, one of the fun things here, one of the fun things here is we see in this translation he is the elder brother of Japheth. In other translations, it says Japheth is the elder brother. The Hebrew is actually really vague in, in this. And so it, it's either way. And we're not 100% sure who was the elder because it happened pre-flood, but that's okay. That's okay. Don't let that shake you off. All right. Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. After Eber, there's a distinct split. There's a very distinct split. And we're given a direct line to the blessing of Shem by God, thus to Israel, and thus to the entire world. All right, Alam. This is southwestern Iran. Asher may have been given his name to Assyria. You know, like might have just given his name there to the Assyrians, like saying Assyria. Although archaeology suggests that the earliest inhabitants of that region were actually the Sumerians, which are Hamitic, right? They're from the Hamite clan. Arfashad, 
though this territory is uncertain, the lineage is definitely expanded. And we, we see some of that in Genesis chapter 11. Get a little bit more information there. Genesis 11, 12 to 17. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived another after he fathered Shelah 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Uh, when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, had other sons and daughters. And when Eber lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Again, we're getting back into the genealogy side of it as well. Lud, this is related to the Lydians in Asia Minor. Remember, we had different ones that were in a different area. Now we're up into Asia Minor. Aram refers to the entire kingdom of the Aramites, which is a tribe throughout Syria and Mesopotamia. We have the sons of Aram, which is Uz. Not a lot known about them. In fact, let's let's just take a look from, directly quote this from Genesis, a commentary. It's actually a really good in-depth commentary on the book of Genesis. Little known about them, however, the patriarchs have close relations with them, and there's other evidence they pointed out to that, but that'll suffice for now. Hull is an unidentified group, same with Gether. Just because we, we don't have the archaeology and everything to back them up, they could have been nomadic groups. We don't know. Uh, but they did at the day, obviously. Mash, this is northern Mesopotamia, and or the mountains of Lebanon. Now, Arpashad fathered. Now, the, the Septuagint here adds here and in 11, 12 to 17, because it talks about the same thing. Arpashad fathered and it adds father of Canaan. Okay, different spelling, but still Canaan, which makes sense because this is listed in the lineage of Jesus when we see that in Luke chapter 3, verses 35 and 36, which says this, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Iber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphasad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemech, as we start going through the genealogy of Jesus all the way down, okay? So you, you get that in there. Canaan is C-A-I-N-A-N, -A -N, so not with the double A, so it's a different one. Now, the Septuagint adds it because it's in, I'm not saying the Septuagint adds it because it's in the New Testament, but the Septuagint adds it, which does make a lot of sense because it is also in the New Testament within the lineage. So again, a lot of the, the New Testament writers were pulling from the Septuagint, so that also makes sense as well. Now, Sheila, this is an uncertain, but the full name may be Methuselah instead of just Sheila. It might be Methuselah who fathered Eber. This is the last descendant of God's blessing prior to of to Shem, prior to the split. Then we get the split. 25 to 30. Eber bore two sons. First of all, we get Peleg. For the earth was divided. This 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 name literally means division. Now, now typically when we hear a name like that in the Bible and through ancient texts and whatnot, we we take that as being a that this is the bad side. This is the side that doesn't necessarily go well. This is actually the side that does go well. Okay. Peleg goes on. Now, the other one does not go as well. The name literally means division, slightly because of what's coming in Babel. And it just kind of poetically plays the stage to that, but that was the name we're given. Okay. Now, there's a lot of chaos that was being presented at the time. 
Take a look at Psalm 55, 9 to 11. Now, obviously, this is not directly about Babel, but David was seeing some, some consistency in things happening. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it and on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruins in its midst, oppression and fraud. Do not depart from this marketplace. So his lineage comes in the next book, of Genesis, which we'll get to. So Peleg, this is all we get is the name of Peleg. And then we get into Joktan. Now Joktan, it's an actual Aramaic name. It's not, not necessarily Hebrew. It's Aramaic and it means watchful. And the fathers, he fathers the tribes and clans, the South Arabia. Okay, now that the blessing, again, it, it splits. Peleg continues on and goes forward. That's where we're going to get Abram or Abraham which then goes through all the way down to Jesus. Now, Joktan fathered Almadad. This is a tribe in Yemen. A lot of these are in the Yemen region. You'll see that. Shelef, tribe in Yemen, Hazaramaveth, South Arabian region of Hadramaut. Jera, location's not quite known, but it's likely in South Arabia because most of them are. Hadaram, this is an Arabian tribe. Uzul is traditionally accepted as a pre-Islamic Islamic name of Sanaha. This is the capital of Yemen. Dikla, this is Southern Arabian oasis, meaning the palm land. Obal, between Odia and Zanaha. Abimel, this is an unidentified group. Sheba, it's not exactly certain, but some believe this to be the same Sheba from chapter 10, verse 7, so earlier. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but some definitely believe that that is the case. Ophir, now this is a gold-rich land somewhere in South Arabia. The reason that we point that out is Job actually mentions it in Job 22, 24. If you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed. So Havilah, this is again, it's uncertain. And some also pull this and say that this is probably the same Havilah or in the same region of the other Havilah from 10.7. And then Jobab from Southern Arabia. And their territory, basically Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and perhaps some of the Oman areas. Then we get 31 to 32. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, and their lands of the nations. Again, obviously after the split from the Tower of Babel. And these are the clans and the sons of Noah. So it's the entire genealogy after Noah going down through this generation prior to the Tower of Babel. Sets the stage for the split at the Tower of Babel. Okay. And their nations, from these, the nations spread abroad the earth. Now, the split happens after the Tower of Babel. This is theological splitting and the spread of the people after the flood. All right, so what can we take away from this? First of all, it's always a struggle whenever we, we read these things and go, there's just so many names. It's boring because this stuff in our Western society, we are so individualist. Everything that comes to us that is based on us, we want it all based on who we are, not necessarily who we come from or necessarily where we come from. We feel that our work and our thing should stand on its own. We want to be recognized for who we are as an individual, not necessarily who we are and where we come from as a people. This is not the case throughout the Bible. In fact, pretty much all of the biblical text is written from a completely different standpoint. Family matters. Heritage matters. God looks at things in a way that it goes through the family line. So with that in mind, God keeps track of where we come from and our choices in life can and do impact those that follow us. We must realize and act based on the reality that our decisions 
and actions matter to more than simply ourselves. Okay, you'll hear things about a generational curse or a generational sin and how we need to break those. And I catch myself sometimes because I think too too often people either can play play one card or the other. Either it is it's all on myself and I have to do this on my own or everything is a generational sin and a generational curse and you have to break, have to break. There's There's some reality, right? Some things are spiritual warfare. Some things are... Uh, ourselves, some things are God's design, you know, it's, it, there's all sorts of different things. And so when it comes to these sorts of things, some of it is personal choices. Some of it is generational sin and curse and things that we need to break and go through and work with God through. Weigh that out, you know, work that out between you and God, figure it out. You, you can do that with the help of the Holy Spirit and going forward. Also, there's a theological reason and linking with these 70 nations. And we see evidence of this in multiple places throughout the scriptures. We'll get to more of those when we get to them, but there's a linking between that 70 nations and going forward in this. We see that the children of Ham and thus Canaan became the bitter rivals and enemies of God's people, Israel. And finally, we see that the line of Shem leading to a pivotal point in the history of Israel and thus to the world. God was showing how he would and now has make a way and made a way to bring his creation back to him. And he's working to bring it back to him. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this word. I know this was kind of a a brutal one to get through because we don't always just look at names and peoples and and going through this as as just a fun, great time. But God, I I thank you still that, that you have this in your word and that you've given it to us. And I thank you that we can get things out of this and that you're showing us your intentions through this and some of the plan and some of these things happening through this, Father. I just ask that you you give us ears to hear, you give us eyes to see, that you speak to us through the Holy Spirit and give us guidance through this so that we can learn and continue to grow. I just ask that you be with us this week as we go about and live lives and impact those around us for your kingdom and for you in your son's name. Amen. Well, hey, thank you guys. Hope you got something out of this. We are going to be taking several, several weeks off. In fact, we're not going to be back until halfway through July. So enjoy June. Enjoy the 4th of July. We're not going to talk to you guys until after that. We just have lots of fundraising trips going on, lots of different activities happening all of June and into July. So just continue to be praying with us through this. And we'll see you guys next time. We'll see you guys here in uh, about a month and a half or so. Bless you guys. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.